tonight we are beginning a new series entitled All Things New. And uh, this entire week, the Lord has just been really teaching me some new things that I'm excited to begin to share with you tonight. And I can't um, say that it's coincidence that this series begins in the climate in which we find ourselves presently on Sunday. Um, wait, I don't know what the woo is for. About what? Well, the weather change is nice, right, right. I was specifically talking about September 11th, though, so it's kind of not as exciting as the weather change, right? So we can woo the weather change, maybe not woo so much September 11th. But on Sunday, you know, is the anniversary, 10-year anniversary of September 11th. And I don't know if you remember where you were whenever you found out what was going on. I absolutely do. Um, it was my freshman year in college at LSU, Go Tigers. And um, I was actually sleeping on a hide-a-bed in the living room of some guy's apartments because, through a long story, I did not want to stay in the dorms, the dorm that I was in, because I had a really odd, weird roommate. So I moved out into an apartment with two guys from the Baptist Collegiate Ministry. And until we got the condo, this is turning into a long story. Until we got the condo that one of the guys was going to buy, we just had this two-bedroom apartment, and I slept on the fold-out couch in the living room. And every morning before I went to school, I would watch the Today Show. And back when Katie Kirk was on, it was actually really good. So um, that particular morning, I woke up like I did every morning and turned on Today Show, was watching it, and then they came across the, with the news flash that one of the World Trade Center buildings had been hit by a plane. And literally live, as I'm watching the Today Show, I saw the other plane fly into the other tower and thought it was a replay of the initial one. But it was another plane that had hit the other tower. And I just remember the almost dullness I felt at that moment because I couldn't even begin to feel what was going on. You know, we had never had anything like this happen to us before. Nobody had ever attacked us uh, on our own soil. And so to see this, to wonder if it was an accident or coincidence that two planes would fly into these buildings, who was responsible for it, was an overwhelming feeling. And I remember the next few days when George Bush went down to the, uh, the, the crash site and, and seeing the towers um, after they had crumbled. And the memorial later on that week as I drove home, because I just wanted to go home and be with my family during that time, I remember all of this uh, darkness overcoming America. And in Louisiana, we weren't really even affected by it directly. And yet the tragedy had extended all the way down to Louisiana. And tonight, as we begin this, this series, All Things New, we ask the question, can Christianity speak hope into situations like 9-11? Can Christianity speak hope into situations like Katrina? Four years after that, when New Orleans and the Gulf Coast is rampaged by a hurricane, can Christianity speak hope into the drought situation and intense hunger that's going on in Somalia right now? Can Christianity look into the face of darkness at every level and speak into hope? And even not in large, overwhelmingly evil things. Can Christianity speak hope into divorce? 
Can Christianity speak hope into addiction? Can Christianity speak hope into every effect of the fall that you and I see? And the answer, of course, is overwhelmingly yes. Of course, Christianity can speak hope into these situations. And why? Why is it that you and I can go to these places like Somalia or uh, New York City after 9-11? Why is it that we can go into New Orleans after experiencing this tremendous tra- uh, tragedy and speak a message of hope? Well, fundamentally, the reason that Christianity provides hope is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the single most important event in human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in all of human history because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I have no hope. You and I have no message to proclaim. You and I have no assurance that things will get better. You and I have no assurance that death is not the ultimate victor and master over all of humanity. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are hopeless. The resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of Christ's redemptive, reconciliatory, restorative work throughout the entirety of human history and is the bedrock for his proclamation in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Without the resurrection of Christ, Jesus Christ does not make all things new. The resurrection is the assurance that what Christ has proclaimed in Revelation 21.5 will be securely happening in our future. The resurrection is the most important event in human history. Let me just give you a quote to kind of undergird what I'm saying tonight. It's kind of a long one, so you can read along with me. The biblical story of redemption must be understood within the larger story of creation. First Adam and later Israel was placed in God's sanctuary, the garden and the promised land respectively. But both Adam and Israel failed to be a faithful, obedient steward. And both were expelled from the sanctuary that God had created for them. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, was faithful and obedient to God. Though the world killed him, God raised him to life, which meant that death was defeated. Through his spirit, God pours into sinners the resurrection life of his son, created a new humanity in Christ. Those who are in Christ move through death into new life and exaltation in God's sanctuary, there to enjoy his presence forever. The resurrection poured into us so that now those of us who are in Christ can move through death, remember that statement, through death into new life and exaltation in God's sanctuary, there to enjoy his presence forever. The resurrection communicates that the gospel is not simply about redemption and reconciliation, but also restoration. 
Not to diminish the fact that the gospel is about redemption and reconciliation, but inasmuch as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, is about, rest, is about reconciliation and redemption, it is also about restoration. Of course, we make much of the fact that we were separated from God and that we could not work our way up to God and that God came down to us to pull us up from our own depravity. He redeemed us from our enslavement to sin. He paid a price that we could not pay to buy us back from a master that had no business being our master. And we rejoice in the fact that God gave his only son and his son died on the cross for us to save us from that bondage. And we rejoice in the fact that he has brought us back into perfect fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, enabling us to worship a God who created us to worship him. Finally, we as his creation can glorify him the way that we were created to glorify him. But my friends, the gospel does not stop there. The gospel is about a movement back toward Eden in which the saints of God will be able to fully fellowship with God once again in perfect intimacy as the new Jerusalem descends from the new heaven upon the new earth. God will take up permanent residence among his people and we will have full access to him because we have been made new. Jesus is making all things new. He is undoing every effect of the fall, having conquered sin's greatest victory, death. And the resurrection guarantees this potential. It secures our future. And that means there's an implication for us. N.T. Wright says this, Our task as the people of God in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, and both worship and mission as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. The resurrection is everything. And the resurrection calls us to be a new people who usher in the new kingdom of God, thereby overcoming the hold and dominion of sin. You and I don't have hope. You and I cannot proclaim that all things are being made new without the resurrection. So what do I mean when I say resurrection? Because today there's a lot of debate about what it means to be resurrected. I mean, in some sense, you could look at Star Wars and say when Obi-Wan Kenobi comes back to speak into Luke's life, he's kind of resurrected because there's a spiritual form of him, even though he's not really there. He came back. He's active. He's speaking. Same thing could be true in Harry Potter. The resurrection stone brings back Harry's parents who are dead, and they speak to him, but they're spirits. They're not fully flesh. And a lot of people today communicate, at least indirectly, that the most important part of the resurrection is not necessarily the fleshly part, but the spiritual part. And we focus restoratively on the idea that God is restoring our spirit. He is restoring the spiritual realm around us. But rarely do we communicate about the fact that restoration is not just a spiritual endeavor, but also a physical endeavor. It's important for us to remember that 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a spiritual event. It was a physical event. The full bodily restoration of Christ is of the utmost importance in that it communicates physical restoration as well as spiritual redemption. It's not just spiritual. This is key for us. Our hope is not just reserved for the hereafter. Our hope is not just reserved for heaven. We have to be careful about how we speak about future events. That we long for heaven, and heaven is the place that we long for. That's true in some sense, but our future hope is not reserved to heaven. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And our residence will be upon the new earth in perfect harmony with the new heaven. And we, my friends, begin experiencing part of that new kingdom even now. And this is a shocking development for first century Jews. Shocking development for first century Jews. The idea of an individual resurrection fully in bodily form preceding a later corporate resurrection for all the Jews was a new idea to the early church. A brand new idea. Many Jews, except the Sadducees, uh, believed in an eventual resurrection. And that's how you can remember Sadducees, because they were Sadducee, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. Just a little help. Any of you studying Jewish, Jewish sects at some point in your life can remember Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection because they were Sadducee. Okay? So, uh, but the, the vast majority of Jewish people at that time did believe in a resurrection. You can see this in John chapter 11, verse 24, when Jesus approaches Mary and Martha um, at Lazarus' death. And Martha's complaining, Lord, if you had been here, he would have been all right. He would not have died. And, he, and Jesus says, you know, Martha, Lazarus is going to rise again. And she says, I know he's going to rise again in the last day. She just says, no, he's going to rise again today. He's just asleep. So there was a common thought process in that time that at some point, the Jewish people as a whole would be resurrected from the grave. But no one thought that this would be... Um, foreseen in a way in Christ dying and then being raised again. Think about what the crucifixion of Christ meant for his disciples. Think about what this event, this moment meant for his disciples. Crucifixion in this time was Rome's way of saying, hey guys, we're the big boy on campus and we control everything. If you don't like what we do, guess what? We're going to nail you to a cross, hang you up, and watch you die. And people are going to celebrate it while it happens. The crucifixion meant that Rome was in charge. And so everything that the Jewish people had been waiting on a Messiah for was crushed the day that Jesus Christ was crucified. Because in their mind, the Messiah was supposed to physically overthrow the Roman Empire. This meant for them when Jesus Christ was crucified that the kingdom hadn't come. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They had basically backed the wrong guy, put their money on the wrong horse. The Messiah was supposed to fight God's victorious battle against the wicked pagans. He was supposed to rebuild and cleanse the temple. He was supposed to bring about justice, and yet he died. The crucifixion meant that Christ was a failure. 
No wonder the Jewish people were, or the disciples specifically, were overwhelmed when Christ died. No wonder they were mourning. They had no idea. Even after Jesus explicitly told them, it didn't even cross their mind that someone individually could raise themselves from the grave. But Jesus did. And the resurrection changed everything. The Romans do not own this place. Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. The kingdom has come, just not in the way that we expect it, in a far greater way. Because Jesus is overcoming something much bigger than Rome. He is overcoming every effect of sin and restoring all of nature. Messiah has not just conquered evil and evil people, but evil itself. He is ultimately victorious over our greatest enemy, sin and death. He created a new temple in the bodies of those he has made new and enabled the Spirit of God to take up residence in them. He has called that new people to bring about justice. Since having experienced injustice himself, Jesus knows our every need and has provided for them. Though he died, he lives He has crossed a barrier that no one else could cross. And now everything is different. He did not fail. He succeeded in ways that we could have never even imagined. And Paul discusses this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to turn there with me. We're going to start in 12 through 19 and then jump down to the end of the chapter. Here's what the Bible says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So some of these people in Corinth were saying, okay, we're okay with Christ being raised, but we just cannot believe that there will come a time where we will be resurrected as well. And some of them were even doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a bodily form. And so Paul is directly challenging this idea that both Christ hasn't been resurrected and that we will not be resurrected. No, he's saying both are absolutely true and essential to Christianity. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then down in 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The resurrection guarantees our ability to enter the new promised land as it secures our ability to be made new, both physically and spiritually. Remember, our glorification, remember there's three kind of processes in Christianity. Justification is the initial moment where God declares you righteous before him. The Holy Spirit of God takes residence upon you whenever you give your life to Christ, when you surrender to his lordship, um, when, he, when you make him the savior of your life. He declares you righteous because the righteousness of God is imparted to you through the work of Jesus Christ. That's justification. That's a moment thing. Then there's sanctification, which is the process thereafter in which you and I become more and more like Jesus. That's the process that happens in discipleship as we grow in our faith. We look more like Jesus. The things that do not glorify Christ, we throw aside because we know that we are supposed to look like him as the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and convicts us. But the ultimate realization of that is when we are made brand new completely, when we receive our glorified bodies. And remember, our eschatological state, it's a nice word, right? Our end state is not complete until we receive our physical bodies in a glorified form. Important thing to remember here. You and I will be physical beings in the new heaven and the new earth. And you and I could not be physical beings in the new heaven and the new earth without being made new physically. Because the perishable cannot enter into the imperishable. Things that are imperfect cannot enter into things that are perfect. You and I must be made new in order to receive the blessing and benefit of worshiping God eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. And the resurrection guarantees that. We are imperfect. And by definition, again, imperfection cannot enter into perfection without transformation. And Christ has secured that transformation. You and I no longer have to worry as the high priest did in the Old Testament. We don't have to worry about entering the presence of a holy God and dropping dead because we have imperfection in our life that hasn't been covered. You and I can freely approach and enter into the presence of God for all of eternity because we will have been made new. We will be made new. Further, the resurrection makes possible the overarching plan of God to restore all things, including creation itself. And this is where it gets really good. Because we don't have to wait until Christ's return, to begin to see the kingdom of God 
overcoming the kingdom of the flesh, evil, depravity, despair. You and I as the church have the authority to go out into this world that is overcome by darkness and speak truth and hope into a world that has no hope. You and I have the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, Colossians said, inhabiting us. And that means that we have an authority that this world has been longing and craving for. You and I have the ability as the redemptive resurrection people of God to go into a world that is dying and decaying and say, there is hope. This is not the end. This is not the final verdict over all of creation. No, my friends, what Christ did on the cross says that there is a coming victory and that victory is being flowed out of the church even now. Ultimately, listen to this, a new heaven and a new earth are ridiculous thoughts if Christ himself doesn't show that which has been defiled can be undefiled, purified, and glorified. God is not going to create new matter from which to create these new places. Rather, he will redeem, reconcile, and restore that which he has created. It will die and be resurrected. And the people who have committed to glorify God in eternal worship will rest in this new Eden, the new Jerusalem, with their new bodies and sing holy, holy, holy for all of eternity. By the way, it also makes perfect sense why those who haven't been redeemed in Christ cannot in fact, enter into a new place of residence to worship God because they have not been made new. And those who haven't been made new will glorify God in eternal judgment, getting their wish to be their own God. So, why this study? Well, fundamentally... What we believe about life after death directly affects what we think about life before it. If you were to look at the scope of Christianity today across Europe and even the Northeast and certainly in a postmodern context, you would see, I think, and I can't completely confirm this, but um, that the degradation of Christianity in those places began in some way with a rejection of the traditional views of heaven and hell. If you and I believe in heaven and you and I believe in hell, like the Bible teaches, then that should do something to us. My buddy Travis tweeted a quote the other day, that kind of rocked his world and rocks mine. And it said this, how much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about Jesus if you believe in hell? That's kind of mind-blowing, right? Because what you believe about life after death directly affects the way that you think about life before it. And further, if it is true that you and I had the Holy Spirit of God living within us, that 
enabled Christ to be raised from the dead and promise us a future hope, introducing the kingdom of the Spirit, the kingdom that Christ wants to build here on the earth, in tension with the kingdom of the flesh that was already established on the earth. And you and I know that we as the church have the ability to extend or push forward the kingdom of the Spirit against the kingdom of the flesh and have victory in anticipation of ultimate victory when Christ will return and indeed make all things new. This life is not meaningless. If you're not careful, you could look at the hereafter and say, God, just take me now. I just want to get there. That's not the right way to look at the hereafter because God left us here with a purpose to build his kingdom in anticipation of his kingly return in which we will bring that building to fruition. This life has meaning. It's not meaningless, nor is it worth giving to things that don't matter. A recognition of the fact that God has called us to push forth the kingdom of God and a very limited time that we are here on the earth should make us use our life, the very little life that we have, for things that matter. It's amazing to me how much people are getting bent out of shape over this Big 12 thing. Right? Because AM wants to leave. Baylor's worried about what will happen. They do leave. They're going to get left out in the cold because they have a terrible football program. And people literally are giving their lives to this discussion. How insignificant in the long run? How insignificant? Why would you give your life to that? When God is saying that he is making all things new. He's evidenced in the fact that he can do it by the resurrection of Christ. And he's empowered the church to go start the business of making all things new through the Holy Spirit that is within them. How can we give our life to something else? If we think the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is reserved only for the hereafter, then we will be little effective as the church today. But if we believe the kingdom of God is both already and not yet, and we'll talk more about this as we move through this study, meaning Christ has introduced his spirit to do more than just comfort, but also to bring about victory, then we need to live in that truth. If we believe in the resurrection, we have to believe that we have the power as God's resurrected people to make a difference. We are to hope in the resurrection of Christ and live out the resurrection of Christ. We are able to have new life and be new people only because of what Christ has done. Further, as the church, we are called to take on the darkness, despair, and depravity of, these, of this world, knowing that those things have a shelf limit. Darkness, despair, disease, depravity, they're not like Twinkies. They will not last forever. They will be defeated. And we as the church get to share in that because 
He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. How can we trust that God is working all things for the good of those who love him if we don't trust that his kingdom is growing and will be ultimately victorious? Yes, there will be growing pains. When two kingdoms like this clash, you and I will feel the effect of it. You will feel rejection. You will feel spiritual warfare. But we know that even the struggles we we face now are temporary because Christ in his resurrection has secured ultimate victory. So it's my prayer in this study that you would recognize that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and enables you to build the kingdom of God by overcoming the kingdom of the flesh in a secure victory. We're going to talk about being God's new people, living in his new covenant, having a new identity and a new authority. We're going to talk about what it means for us to be a new community, embracing a new culture that ultimately reflects God's future community and culture that he will bring to fruition when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. I think God's going to really open our eyes to how what we think about the future and what he has promised us about the future affects how we live our lives day to day. But remember, You can only participate in this if you have embraced Christ's resurrection. The Holy Spirit of God is within you, then you cannot be made new. And you cannot embrace God's plan and your future in that plan because you are outside of it. But remember, God is in the business of redemption and reconciliation. And he wants to restore you. And tonight you can claim the promise of the cross and the promise of his resurrection. And so if you've never given your life to Jesus, tonight you can. And then you can share in this restorative work for all of creation. Is the Spirit of God within you? It's a question you've got to ask yourself. But then more importantly, for those of us who are already in Christ, are you building his kingdom with it? As the band comes back out, I won't need to really focus on those two things. Is the Spirit of God within you, and are you building God's kingdom with it? We're going to sing a song called Beautiful Things by a band named Gunger. And I think it just really sums up what God is doing in and through us around the world. He takes broken things and he makes beautiful things out of them. And every one of you in here who have experienced Christ know what the resurrection of Christ means for your life. 
you had darkness and despair in your life. You found hopelessness in your life. And the promise of Christ being resurrected from the grave spoke new life into you and hope. Where you thought there was no hope, he came and made something beautiful. And the beautiful message even beyond that is that now as God's redeemed people, we get to go participate in that and take broken, dirty things all over the world, speak speak Christ's glorious hope and truth over it and watch God make something beautiful out of something that wasn't. Over the next few weeks as we continue this series, I hope you see more and more how we get to participate in that. But no, none of this happens without the resurrection of Christ. It is the cornerstone of our faith. It is the cornerstone of that hope. May we defend it, live in light of it, and build his kingdom as a result of it. Father, I pray you would do something in us and through us. God, encourage us, challenge us to truly be your resurrected people here. God, that your resurrection spirit lives in us. You are making us new and calling us to make things new with you around us. May we be your people, truly living out every aspect of the gospel. Speak to us, I pray, in the name of Jesus.